I'm Beverly Wang, and in this episode of It's Not a Race, we're heading to the future, and it's not a happy place. As we continue to explore the theme of storytelling, we're looking at dystopian tales. Because sometimes, when the news is grim... The nightmare and the logistical nightmare that Hurricane Maria left behind is everywhere. Political turmoil... They will be met with fire and fury. Unrest. In what could be a further escalation in the high-pressure standoff. Disasters. As heavy rains and floodwaters wash through regional areas in states right along the East Coast. It really can feel like the world is coming to an end. You know, we're dying here. We truly are dying here. Time and again, it seems we turn to pop culture to work out our collective anxieties about the future of the world and humanity. Get back in your car right now! Remain with your feet! I need your deck. This is a bad one, the worst yet. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three male, three female. But what if, for some of us, the apocalypse has already happened. Well, when you look at apocalyptic fiction or the concept of an apocalypse, you're talking about, um, you know, people always talk about the nuclear apocalypse wiping out massive numbers of people or an apocalyptic war where everyone dies. But Aboriginal people have actually lived an apocalyptic scenario. In 1788, people arrived, started killing everyone. We went from dominating a continent, being on our own here, to having less than 3% of the national population is now Indigenous. So if you think about the, the idea of an apocalypse, Aboriginal people experienced it. It's probably one of the worst apocalypses in the history of the world, if you look at what's, uh, how many people died over, and how long it went on for. Speculative fiction. Post-apocalyptic narratives. Superhero tales. These types of stories are preoccupied with the future of humanity. No big deal. And it seems to me that the story that continues to haunt Australia is the story of the founding of this country. We see it in arguments over whether to change the date of Australia Day. We see it in the federal government's rejection of the Uluru Statement. It's everywhere, and we can't seem to get away from it. So, in this episode, we're going to hear from creators who are exploring visions of the future that reframe our views of the past and present. The voice you just heard, that was author Claire Coleman. My name is Claire G. Coleman. I'm a Noongar author, born in Western Australia. Um, I've been writing a novel, and it's just recently been published by Hatchet Australia. The book's called Terra Nullius. I wrote it in a dodgy old caravan travelling around Australia, which everyone finds very interesting and amusing. Do you find it interesting and amusing? Well, I don't know any other way to write. It's just how it happened. I've never, I haven't written a novel any other way, so I don't know if it's unusual. It's not for me. Terra Nullius, the novel, is tricky to categorise. It's best described as speculative fiction, a blend of sci-fi and crystal ball gazing inspired by Australia's colonial history. Australia's collective understanding of colonial history, well, particularly white Australia's collective understanding of colonial history, um, is pretty dismal. Just the other day I had a conversation with someone who said they don't know why people have a problem with 
celebrating of Australia Day on January 26 because they did not know that Australia Day is actually a celebration of the day that white people arrived. I think what they believe, or the, the only way they can make that work is if the concept of terra nullius, that there was no one here, is still considered to be true in some parts of the thinking of white Australia. I've actually said before that, yeah, people talk about closing the gap. Well, I think the gap that needs to be closed is the gap between the fiction of Australia and the reality of Australia. The fiction of Australia is terra nullius. The reality is that terra nullius was actually a lie. And I think that gap needs to be closed. And that's what I've been, I suppose that's what I've been trying to achieve. If you missed it in history class, or if your history class missed it, in Latin and in international law, terra nullius means land belonging to no one. It was the legal basis on which Australia was colonised by the British. 2017 marks 25 years since the Mabo decision, in which Eddie Koiki Mabo was the key plaintiff in the historic land rights high court case that proved Terranellius was wrong and that a system of land ownership existed before 1788. Well, the book is a reframing or a reanalysis, re-examination of the invasion of Australia, or as some people call it, the invasion and subsequent colonisation structured in a way to make people who've resisted understanding that it was an invasion and help them understand that it was, um, and help people understand that the invasion of Australia was not peaceful and that the invasion of Australia led to an apocalypse for the Aboriginal people. Under that thinking, this 200-plus years since European colonisation in Australia, we are already in the post-apocalyptic world. Yes, we are, for, for Aboriginal people. But they say that white people say that Australia is the lucky country. The question is, who's it lucky for, really? That's, that's really the question, because it's certainly not lucky for us. And I've had this discussion recently. If Australia was not occupied under terra nullius, therefore it was invaded in a state of war. If it was invaded in a state of war, the war is still going because there's never been a treaty and a cessation of hostilities. So by some by international definitions of what invasion war is, we're still at war. So I don't want to give away too much detail about what happens in Claire's book, Terra Nullius, because I don't want to spoil it. There's a twist in the story, and to find out what it is, you're going to have to read the book. But suffice to say, she wrote it for a non-Indigenous audience, and that twist really brings it home. People don't think, um, they don't look at Aboriginal people and the suffering of Aboriginal people, and the Aboriginal people of a couple of generations ago think, what if that was my grandfather? And that's what you are really trying to do, hey? Yes, I'm trying to make people realise, what if that was my grandfather or my great-grandfather or my direct ancestor? What if it was my children that were taken or, or my mum who was taken? I really wrote Terranullius for, frankly, for non-Aboriginal people because we know how bad things are. We don't need to be taught. Also, um, I'll be honest, uh, Aboriginal people is, a, is 3% of the population. That's a very small market. And I, I didn't write marketing in mind, but certainly literature by Aboriginal authors is read more by non-Aboriginal people than by Aboriginal people. That's obvious. So I, I had that in mind when I was writing, but also I did write it to provoke a new way of thinking and provoke empathy in non-Aboriginal people. Claire isn't alone in exploring historical themes through stories that project the future. 
Terra Nullius is the origin story of Australia's colonization, and dreaming stories are the creation stories of Aboriginal Australians, the oldest continuous civilization in the world. Both of those fed into TV producer and writer Ryan Griffin's series, Clever Man. You know, it is a superhero story. We I lean on, on the tropes of um, superhero storytelling a lot throughout the series. Um, you know, it is set in the near future, so it, it, it can be classified as a sci-fi in a way. But for, I guess for me, it's because the content, the subtext of the story is so real to me that it is a drama for me. Clever Man is set in the dystopian near future, where a dispossessed indigenous minority group called the Harrys are targeted by an authoritarian government for control and eradication. Their super strength is the object of both fear and desire, and their protector is the Clever Man, Cohen, an Aboriginal superhero whose powers are based on dreaming stories. One night, a man... Old and wise arrives at the place that that spirit stood. He is the clever man, an important man in Australian Aboriginal culture, a man of power within the clan, the conduit between the dreaming and this world. And to get permission to use those stories in the series was a long process. It took seven years. Here's Ryan. Yeah, so first, you know, we we acknowledge, you know, the countries that we are, are dealing with the Aboriginal countries within Australia that we're dealing with. Um, so both um, dealing with mine and John Bell, one of the writers on the first season, his community too. So we went back to, to family first and, and, you know, I spoke to my nan and pop and my, my auntie, my dad, and just, you know, tried to head back to where my family's from and start reaching out to the elders there um, and talking to them about what I'm wanting to do, um, you know, that we're not here to just take the stories and run. We're, we're, we're trying to make something that's going to empower our people. And, you know, that's a long process. A lot of people, when you think of dreaming stories, they always get drawn into the ones, the books that were handed to them in school. And a lot of those aren't our stories. They're, they're stories that have been heard and someone's adapted it to what they thought the story meant or because you know at one stage we had originally had clever man set as a children's show and the thing about it is is when you're staying true to a lot of the stories that we were dealing with there was a lot of death there was a lot of brutal punishment throughout the storytelling and you just couldn't really blend that into a kid series and still stay true to the culture at the same time. So it took us a while to really, you know, we tried first and we tried to make it work, but, uh, you know, we just slowly kept on aging it up and aging it up until it felt right. How do you approach even the, um, I guess, the blending of stories? So if you're taking stories from different cultures, even the issue of um, putting them in the same story environment, is that potentially problematic? Yeah, it's 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 quite hard because you know um, one thing about stories that are in our culture is that these stories are often told to you by an elder, um, and so you've earned the story. It's not that it's you know it's a bedtime story or you know you've earned the right to hear this. Um, and when you're told the story, 
you're not here to question the story. So if uh, if a young boy was set on fire and he climbed a tree and he turned into the sun, then that's what happened. And you you don't question how is that possible or why that's happened. That's 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 your journey to take. It's you to learn from that story and and to move forward. But when you're putting that into Western stories, there's always a question and an answer by the end of the story. Um, there is a, a a journey that's taken place that our character will go through. And that's a big thing for, for us. And it's really hard to, to sort of grasp when we're in a room with, you know, non-Aboriginal people and Aboriginal people. We're trying to find a way to make that blend and also stay true to, you know, storytelling for television and what our audience's expectations are. You know, we've gained permissions to tell this in our in our culture and that the only re- the only reason why we're allowed to have this conversation is because we've listened to the elders and we've listened to what we can and can't do. The character is the world that you're representing in Clever Man does have the same history as Australia. The you know arrival of Captain Cook, Terra Nullius, all of that have happened in the, in your world, right? In that Clever Man world. Yes, yeah, and that was a big thing for for um, even when we were casting the show, for example. Um, one of the questions that we're asked is is can the Harrys be played by any race? And the first thing for me is like, well, no, um, because you know. W- w- there's two levels to look at this in, in, in the way of, of the show and outside of the show and what we're wanting to do um, with empowering people of colour is that we have a... The, the term terra nullius was, a, you know, branded to allow the idea that black people weren't living on this country in the first place. And if we allow non-people of colour to be playing these roles... We're saying that these hairy people were here even before Aboriginal people. And if we were to to say that it wasn't, you know, if, if these characters weren't played by Aboriginal people, it, it for me it sort of took away from the messages that we're, we're trying to say, you know, both in the show and outside the show. She's a hairy. Can I ask how old you are? How old are you? Hmm? They think you're pretty weird too, you know. All that skin and flesh exposed. You're weak and slow and live a third of the time that we do. (laughs) We could hunt you down and destroy your kind so easily. But we don't. So you want to ask any more questions? So I'm curious, Ryan, when you were growing up and watching movies like Western films or like Westerns, like Cowboys, do you remember a moment when you realized, oh, hang on, I'm not the hero. I'm not the cowboy in this movie. I'm the Indian. Yeah, I think, um, look, it's interesting because my father is is a huge Western fan. You know, often, you, you know, he was watching on, you know, a Sunday afternoon before sport <laughs> came on, he would be watching those sort of films. And I think that's so, it's it's why I fell into the superhero world so easily is that it's such a d- diverse world where, you know, the, the, the things that you're seeing on screen, like you said, there, there is a white hero 
And if it is shaped around a, a black story, then it's the white savior who's helping, you know, helping the indigenous person become one of them in a way, or the noble savage in a way. Like, I think for me, it was just, it was superheroes where, you know, obviously removing the, the big key key ones that are up there who are all white, but in the DC and Marvel worlds, there are, um, you know, superheroes who, who are of different ethnicity and they're the ones that I sort of started to cling to. How did you try to incorporate this idea of the white saviour or take on the idea of the white saviour and clever man? Um, I think the big thing for me was that we didn't need Cohen to have a white sidekick or a white person who could give him the things that he needs to push forward. Um, everything that Cohen uses to become a stronger person is his past and his connection to family and his connection to the culture. Um, and it wasn't something that he was reading in books. It wasn't something, it was something that he had to explore and understand who he was as a, as a, as an Aboriginal man to strengthen who he is. And, and, um, it wasn't anyone else but himself to do that. Clever Man isn't the first Aboriginal superhero that's been created. Um, it, there are others in both the DC and Marvel universe, but they are—they feel very much like a quick Wikipedia or Google search to create the culture around the, the hero. It didn't feel like it was steeped and and rang true to um, our culture. And um, you know that was the, that was a big thing for me. It was it was something that he could realise that these are stories that I've told him or, 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 you know, as he grows up, he can learn more about the culture. So it was just about trying to find something that um, not only could help empower my son but other, other Aboriginal people. You know, in, in, in a world where a lot of our stories are, uh, are hidden or, or not presented on a, a larger scale or have been gentrified because the stories have been taken away. It was a big thing to make sure that Clever Man stayed true to culture throughout the, the whole process of the filmmaking. I stood up and fought for your people and was cast aside, shown no respect. But things are about to change. You're special, Bundy. You will be the Harry who changes the lives of your people and I will be the man who makes that happen. Then you will respect me. Yeah, within the groups in Clever Man, the Harrys, the Aboriginal people, there are internal divisions. So what were you trying to tease out there by, by, by creating those divisions and putting those arguments on display? Um, one thing for me is that we, we've never really seen how much... The Aboriginal community really argues among itself just as much as we do with, you know, the Western forces of, of oppression. And, I, you know, I think it's we're constantly having the conflict between, in particular in the third season, we have three Aboriginal men who all want the same thing, but they're all doing it in different ways and they are arguing amongst each other about who's right or wrong. So you have one who's wanting to do it by force. You're wanting one that's trying to 
to bring it together as 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 one. You have uh, another who is you know wanting to control it as well as control his own people. So there, you know, it is it's about um, always about listening to someone else because you often are, are saying the same thing, but you're going about it in a different way. In fiction, you have that freedom, don't you, where you can create this parallel story that gives you the freedom to say all those things. Did you did you have that sense of of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know each each time that we we are in the writers' room for Clever Man, we always start off with the conversation about like what are the the big political things that you'd like to say. What's going to mold our, our our show you know in the first season it was it was more about the treatment of aboriginal people in early colonization and the second season was more about the assimilation process and and you know it, it's just trying to find the things that you want to want to say and um find out which characters they sit best with this government will spare no effort to protect you and to protect our way of life we get to say who lives here and who doesn't. And with your help, we will prevail. Thank you. And God bless. Uh, Rod Serling, who um, produced The Twilight Zone, said he wrote science fiction and fantasy because if he put his politics into stuff that was real, they'd never put it on television. Someone once asked me if Terranalias has a happy ending. And I said, um, I'm an Aboriginal author. I haven't written a happy ending because for us, happy endings feel dishonest. Because as Aboriginal Australians haven't had happy endings. The happiest ending, I think, for in Aboriginal literature tends to be, hooray, I survived. Thanks to Claire Coleman and Ryan Griffin for talking about the future and the past with me. Claire's book, Terra Nullius, is published by Hachette, and it's available online and in bookshops all across Australia. And season one and two of Ryan Griffin's Clever Man are available on DVD, or look for them on streaming services too. Claire and Ryan are both on Twitter. We'll post their handles on our website, abc.net.au forward slash not a race. I'm at Beverly Wang, and don't forget to tweet us using our hashtag NotArace. Also, if you like the podcast, please rate and review It's Not A Race on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Okay, that's it for me. See you next time. Bye. Credits time. Credits time. Credits time. Beverly Wang, that's me. I created It's On A Race and I present it. Martin Prouter wrote the music. Leona Hamid, that's me. She's, she's, um, I am, I'm the producer. Leona Hamid, I'm the producer. Matthew Crawford, I do the sound design. And Lorena Ellum and Andrea Ho, well, they're our executive producers. It really helps other people find it. Uh, it really helps all the people. Uh, it really helps every. Uh!